Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Nymphed Alumni. I'm Sam. I'm here with Biz and Alexi. And today we're going to tackle the part two of our two-part country girl episode. The first one is available on Patreon if you guys want to listen. Um, But there are just a lot of topics that came up after we recorded the first episode that we realized we really wanted to touch on. Some important news items, some interesting discoveries, and also, we came across the contact information of two very respected historians of country music, Kevin Fontenot and Caroline Nagy, as well as a special dispatch from Texas Overture as an outro for our episode. Um, we're going to do a little um, break to talk with them, but first we're going to kind of tackle some of the topics that we wanted to discuss. But yeah, what are you guys feeling right now? How... Let's do a little temp check. How are you feeling about the country vibes and the culture at the moment? I feel pretty good. I feel like you've been giving us a lot of updates on Bella Hadid's romantic journey into the heart of Texas. This is true. Um, This is kind of what inspired me deeply to pursue a second episode. Important news item is that Bella Hadid was spotted at the Fort Worth Stockyards with a cowboy named Adan Banuelos. She was on a date there. And um, I was really excited because I love the stockyards. I love Fort Worth. I myself have been on a nice romantic date to the Fort Worth stockyards. And I found this really interesting in her absence from the public eye because I think it's, before I get into that, I think it's important to explain what the Fort Worth stockyards are. I think it's difficult to break them down what they are specifically mostly because they're not exactly one thing. They're best described as a historic district in the old part of Fort Worth. And it's like a number of small oddball exhibits like the John Wayne Museum, the Stockyards Museum, various country luxury shops like Lucchese, King Ranch, Tacovas, and then also a small strip of honky-tonks and dive bars. And it also remains an operational stockyard with a small rodeo arena. So while you're dropping racks on like a stylish personality, personalized Stetson it absolutely reeks like it reeks of cow manure (laughs) um it smells so bad and there's like a longhorn that's always standing outside that is looking really mean and you can take pictures with it but my dad used to always say whenever he'd smell cow manure that it smells like money uh and it kind of turns into money at the livestock exchange in the stockyards across from the country luxury shopping strip and it's been dubbed the wall street of the west and it's like a very wealthy culture that I feel like people maybe have little contact with because it tends to remain sort of closed off from the rest of the world. Cow people are like rich barons and they have very peculiar tastes. And it's interesting that like this has kind of remained a place of respite for I think people looking to escape the confines of urbanization like I speculate Bella Hadid is doing with her rough-handed cowboy. The thing about that is I'm like, girl... The Lyme disease. Like, if I <laughs> had been bitten by a tick, I wouldn't want to be. But I guess she rides horses anyway, so that's fine. Never mind. Sam, Sam, you gotta you gotta clap back on that. Well, this is true because my counterpoint is that there are no Hamptons, dear ticks, to worry about oh in the du- in in the dusty plains of North Texas. There's that's just sticker burrs and rattlesnakes, and they have ticks, but they're not deer ticks. They don't give you Lyme disease, so she's safe. Yeah, she's safe from the ticks and. You know, all the mystery ailments, I think, have caused her to retreat to this place where oftentimes people describe it as where the West begins. That's what the Fort Worth Stockyards 
are described as. And I think it sort of signifies an era of seeking freedom, seeking more simple styles of living, you know? Yeah. What do you think? What do you guys think attracted her to this this man in the first place? I think it's really interesting to look at Bella's dating history because obviously she in the past dated extremely high profile celebrity types like The Weeknd. And then she famously dated a ugly creative director, which everyone thought was really kind of revolutionary, you know, mediocre boyfriend means something. And now she's like taking that a step further by dating someone who's not attached to the creative industries at all. And obviously, like you said, his um, whole persona is like a, a respite from, what did you say? Like her urban her urban lifestyle in the public eye. Yeah. And then also it's like, I guess Bella just loves horses. Are there horses there? Or is it just like cows? Yeah, there are horses. And also Adon's skill set is training show cutting horses. So... It's like training horses mm. to separate a single cow from a herd and like preventing it from returning oh. to the herd. And to me, this is Why like really they do that. They kind of like lasso them and rope them and run them around. Like show cutting is like you're showing it. It's not necessarily like you're actually cutting the herd out in the wild. Mm-hmm. You're in the mm-hmm. middle of the rodeo arena exhibiting how good your horse is at like predicting how a cow is going to move. It's like called cow sense. Like you're training these horses to have a cow sense and you have to keep it away from the herd for as long as possible. And he's like won awards doing this. He's like very well known. I honestly don't know <laughs> what like the particulars of that activity entail, but apparently it's very complex. <laughs> she went from essence to cow sense. I love that. <laughs> That's really she went, good. Yeah, she went from cow shed to cows. Um, <laughs> so true. <laughs> oh, cow shed. Yeah, I think it seems cool that she's doing this but yeah i do think it's definitely symbolic for i guess an overall turn away from the glamour and trappings of urban life it seems yeah i think like the fact that he's a show cutter and you know the act of separating a cow from the herd and preventing it from returning i feel like it's very metaphorical for like my perception of bella's <laughs> desires because her personal brand is like really defined by attempts to set herself apart from her peers. And she's always constantly expressing the sense of entrapment and deep existential dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's kind of wanting to leave the glitz and glamour of her lifestyle and seek some freedom. And then suddenly like an act of God in comes trotting this like rustic, rough-handed man who only cares about two things, which are the horses and the homespun value systems that make a man noble, you know? I think it's probably like really she's saying this is like a therapeutic retreat into the wide open range and where she can kind of foster her interest in livestock. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's um, really nice to think about because um, when I think about her dating history, I think about like those images of her like, being hounded by paparazzi outside of a club when the weekend like showed up with another girl randomly or like made her cry mm-hmm. publicly. And it's just like very like in a cityscape and there are a ton of people around and I think now she's gonna be more of like a lovelorn homesteader or something it seems like the exact opposite vibe yeah I think she made waves with her last post I think that was one of the last posts she's made on Instagram where it was just those horrific photos of her hooked up to all these IVs and in hospital beds crying it's so interesting to think about like Bella's 
kind of body in the context of horses because like I, f- I feel like I grew up around horses and definitely there was a type of wealthy horse girl who would just always rock up in the area boots with like obviously the boot cut jeans but then it looks so good on them and like a white tank top or something and I feel like we covered that a little bit stylistically in the last episode um because I think we talked about Carrie Carrie Underwood's legs oh yeah mm-hmm. but yeah I, I I actually am just thinking about someone I um grew up with who she's actually it was this girl's mom who was like a cardiologist but she had the same body type as Bella like kind of really willowy and like sinewy um, and I actually just looked at the pictures of Bella with Adon walking through the stockyards and she's she's wearing that kind of same bootcut jean. It just reminds me so much of the 2000s because it's like a mix of that yeah, like sinewy, sinewy body type. And then, yeah, I guess just even the the way the jeans are styled and everything like that. Yeah, I think like her beauty is a very equestrian beauty like I think she shares that with Earth Eater which I think she's compared to a lot they have similar style and kind of a similar face and there's a type of tall long beauty that I think is very equestrian and I think horses can contain that same beauty in like a weird way we need to kind of horses recognize it I think horses can feel it in in people oh yeah yeah it's interesting though how like the type of riding Bella Hadid grew up which think was jumping it's Mm -hmm. equated with like in common opinion with a certain kind of like wealth and haughtiness i guess but i feel like not enough people know enough about western riding and i guess the stockyards to make that judgment like everything you just said i guess kind of points to that same direction in a way with the stockyards being like the wall street of the west I think you said. Yes, yes. But yeah, it's interesting. Like, the public opinion is so different. I was going to say it has, like, a hallmarky vibe, like the, you know, Connecticut or the New England, like, show-jumping diva with, like, the ranch hand cowboy. It's kind of giving, like, Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, but, like, country-country version. Yeah, it's, like, the authentic version. Interestingly, like, I feel like there, the, the the hiddenness of the subset of American culture, I, I'm really fascinated by. Like, I think uh, just agrarian or agricultural and livestock rich people don't really have the same position in the culture, at least like with the youth, which is endlessly obsessed with new money versus old money. Whereas like, I think in the in the Southwest, especially old money means something com- completely different. You have a more storied connection to the nature around you you have kind of a rough and tumble i can get down and dirty and go mudding with with my boys but also go to the cow baron's ball or whatever you know at the yeah. same time and i think, I think this it's is like really it's exhibited. like localized wealth vibes like i think young people just associate money so much with like traveling and like globe trotting as we've mentioned before so a lot of these people i think who have like a more agrarian source of wealth are really tied to that location because they kind of have to like be tied to the land. Ooh, that's so true. Yeah. I feel like Sorry for interrupting. The... No, no, please. I feel like I don't want to talk too much in this because I'm like, Ugh. No, you have to. You're but... a leader. You're leader <laughs> I, in Texas. Um, that... I forgot that Bella was allegedly on like the Olympic route for her horse riding. And that was cut she short was. due to her Lyme disease. So I guess that like element of competitiveness 
in her new her new bow's career is probably quite quite attractive to her. Yeah, he comes from a storied horse riding family. His father was Mexican American or just a Mexican immigrant who came to San Antonio and became a very famous rodeo cowboy and I think his website, Adon Buniello's website, says something like prodigy turned champion. You know, he's like seen as this young prodigy uh, who breaks books, like quite literally. And that kind of of fame is just so self-contained. Related to that, there was like a recent viral video on TikTok that really caught my attention. It was at the FFA convention. And it was this like weird video of these teenagers being elected officers of the FFA. And it went, Sam, do you want to tell people what the FFA is? Oh, yeah, maybe I should start with that. The FFA convention, I think, confuses a lot of people, which was kind of exhibited in the comments. Like everybody who was watching these videos were like, what the hell is this? Like, what's (laughs) going on? Like, what? Like, you know, and the FFA is the Future Farmers of America. And it's this national youth organization that promotes agricultural education they participate in these like really big agricultural projects so that they can learn the details of agricultural science and trading and they're most known in popular culture for wearing these like super cunty uniforms it's like a customized corduroy jacket very a la Bodhi senior cords combined with like a air stewardess type beat like pencil skirts and tights <laughs> and black flats and it's just like a really striking uniform my dad actually was an FFA member for Halloween. He got like a custom jacket, which um, is like really funny because you can only participate in it if you're in middle school or high school. So that was like a good <laughs> joke. But there's this huge convention every single year where all of the members of, of Future Farmers of America go and sort of participate in all these activities. They all meet up with each other. And there's also members of the FFA who are elected as representatives for different regions. And the video that went really viral was this kind of like a massive arena with like all this huge crowd of everybody wearing that same very cunty, sleek uniform. And this man was like calling out names of people who are the representatives elected. And the kids, whenever their name was called, they would be like running and falling and crying like they were on Maury. Like it was so insane. (laughs) And it was just like made like no sense. And everybody was so confused. They're like, what is this? Like, I've never heard of this. And I just feel like it's interesting that the subset of America is like completely hidden from popular view. I grew up with people that were in the FFA, but that's a more rural activity. I think the town I grew up in was like a little bit too big for that to be super influential. But Lainey Wilson performed at the FFA, I think is what people were saying. They have these like, yeah, they have like a little fashion shopping mall inside the FFA convention where all these kids were like wearing Lainey Wilson outfits and like getting dressed to like go to this concert. So it is like a really big part of our culture that I feel very like poetic about, you know, I feel very poetic about modern farming and like farming in general, because I feel like it's really lost on us city dwellers that the cycle of life and death is like literally their trade. Like I spoke about this related to intercompetitive intercollegiate meat judging in our bibliography on Patreon in August, which is kind of adjacent to FFA in that it combines these like harsh and vulgar realities of our agricultural supply chain with a collegiate disposition. It's these members of the agricultural science division at a college going into meat coolers and judging the quality of meat for hours on end. And this is like a competition. And I just think it's funny to like look at the like really sleek FFA uniforms and imagine these kids genetically modifying a pig to be like super fat 
And like they work with and against nature, you know, and they're so intimately familiar with death that they can clock what marbling patterns in an animal carcass makes it a prize cut. So I just feel like agricultural science is the real dark academia. That's my rant about that. That's really good. Whoa. Yeah. I would love like a dark academia novel where like all the kids are are doing agriculture stuff. (laughs) I read like a short story that was like that little link where it's like a bunch of architecture students go on a retreat and they have to like work on a farm and they get really freaked out there's so much life and death with the uh, veterinary sciences ag mech agriculture i don't know yeah, where they it's learn this stuff though like a clemson girl in, yeah yeah but like do they they're in middle school but, like where are they going after school to they go to this the- you have a sponsor at your school and yeah you just i don't know my school had like a a, it was kind of on farmland and so there was like a barn that the like ffa kids would go to i remember them like coming into class late and being like sorry like a goat was giving birth or something and then (laughs) there was an ffa day where they were allowed to like ride tractors onto school property and kind of do like a show and tell thing that's cool yeah I don't know what you would do if your school wasn't like already in a cornfield. <laughs> yeah, I guess you'd take the bus somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's more. Yeah, you do have to like kind of drive out into the country, and I think you do like internships with major agricultural centers in your area. You kind of work and look at what goes on behind the scenes at like a factory or like a mill or a <laughs> stockyard, you know, or a dairy farm. Yeah, I wonder if there's going to be like a big push around this since i think in the past few years we've always seen seen people put like more emphasis on the trades or even the idea of like getting a blue collar boyfriend but i feel like that's always like really excluded agriculture yeah um, but it is a job i think people it is do it. people do do that i think it's kind of it's because of that self-contained quality where mm-hmm. your life is just so removed from you know, you're, you're very, like Alexi said, you're very localized. And so you kind of are drawn to people in your general vicinity. And traveling for your job in agriculture probably entails traveling to other agricultural centers that are not super, you know, they're they're not dating like girls that went to like, I don't know, like Parsons or Barnard, like, yeah. <laughs> like Barnard this or like, true. yeah, you know. It's also like, yeah. If you're like the landed gentry or whatever, it's also quite volatile. Like the money, like if you are a blue collar guy, I feel like like tradies are always priding themselves on being like, oh, like recession proof job. Like I didn't need a degree, whatever, whatever. But agriculture, I feel like you there's almost like a superstition vibe around it because like these forces of nature can just like fuck up a whole season for you, and then it's like, okay, we didn't make any money this year. So I don't think it's something that you can like flex too hard or else like you might be scared that God might humble you. I don't know. Oh, like even true. in like wine, like there are like regions that are like super profitable, but then people will be like, oh, like this region had like, it was too cold this year. So like no one made any money. Yeah. There was that huge frost in South Carolina and Georgia this past year. Like killed oh, all yeah. the peach crops, which we mentioned in some other episode. I don't know why, but that was a good example of that. Yeah, like we've had frost or freezes here in Texas too. I really do wonder how that affects the farmers. Um, and I think they have ways of 
recession proofing their careers, you know, whenever it's a huge, enormous operation. Like I remember seeing a TikTok a couple of years ago. It was kind of a long time ago of like these farmers that were sitting in like a living room and they were talking about how they were like, oh, a lot of people think that we're poor, but he like looks over at the guy next to him. He's like, tell him how much money you spent on a wheel for your tractor. And the guy goes, yeah, I spent $25,000 on a wheel for my tractor. And it's just like the amount of money that is needed to run a major agricultural operation is like unfathomable, you know? Yeah. And so they're, I worked on a it, small farm and even that, like I got in trouble once for overfeeding a horse too much hay. And then my farm boss, like, basically lectured me with like their accounting sheets <laughs> i was just like wait this is like not profitable vibes like you really just have to spend a lot of money yeah 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 and the, the superstition probably is very true i i mean i don't know if, i mean that that seems like it's lost some of its power that's something i feel like i would like to explore more yeah i mean like even with all of the modern technology and like gmos and stuff like coyote like come eat all your chickens i guess that's more something that would happen like a family farm but like yeah like wildfires in california for example if you yeah do something like that but also like yeah immigrant labor is like a huge thing on farms too i guess that's like worth mentioning um yes this is very true i just find it an interesting interesting trait i feel very poetic about it because it just feels very raw and it can be quite vulgar you know you're dealing in like i said you're there at the stockyards and it's this incredibly luxurious place where you can go shopping and spend thousands of dollars on different items but it smells like cow manure and you will maybe step in it when you're walking around and you're like nice boots you know so it's like a that's kind of a you know a suggestion to those who like the old money aesthetic why don't you explore some of the southwestern old money aesthetic i feel like that'd be really interesting but yeah uh, i think another little news item to kind of steer the conversation in another direction is that drake bought a ranch recently outside of houston it was like fourteen thousand acres or sorry 1400 oh my god that would have been crazy um (laughs) and you know drake has always been pretty obsessed with texas you know all my exes live in texas like i'm george Strait. he loves texas women he loves houston specifically and we mentioned this in the first episode but I do have a working theory that country music is making this comeback because rap music has become kind of formulaic. Like, I feel like it's been like a while since a truly groundbreaking and culture shifting rap album has been released, at least to the scale and the frequency that we've seen in the past few decades. Would you guys agree with me or am, is, that, is that just my perception? Like, I don't listen to Yeet, so like, I don't know, but... I do love Yeet. I think that like, yeah, the the level of innovation in rap like travis scott for example released a new album like this summer and i feel like no one really cared yeah Yeah. the stuff that is kind of like blowing up or seeming really innovative is like hybridizing with other genres like the yeet stuff has like a slightly like drain gangish like super electro feel like lil uzi stuff is like very metal and like rock influenced Mm -hmm. and yeah like drill stuff it's it all seems to be pretty international like everyone loves like what's coming out of brazil everyone loves like uk drill Mm -hmm. but american wise yeah i think that like rap is like such a cultural export from america like hip-hop has to be like one of our most like successful successful cultural products but i feel like it doesn't really belong to america anymore yeah i think it's become kind of just this cash cow that it's for the music industry and as a consequence it's become overproduced and somewhat poppy 
And I think, you know, country or sorry, rap music has scratched the itch for a lot of people that I think country music could potentially replace not in the same way because I just don't ever think that rap is not going to be the dominating genre after how much influence and impact it's had on our music in the past few decades but I think some of the elements of country music that I think appeal to modern audiences are shared with the elements of country music I have a whole thing about this but basically like I think they just have like a lot of intersecting themes you know, they have this like both have this culture of exaggerating masculinity and boasting. And there's also a paradoxical struggle between hedonism and redemption, which I will get into briefly here in a moment. And the musical muses of this music <laughs> are, <laughs> are criminals, drug users, drifters, hustlers, you know, people on the down and out struggling towards success and balancing the many paradoxes in their culture. And I can kind of get into this a little more right now, unless you guys want to chime in on a comment. I want to say that we talked a bit about bro country in like the last installment of this episode. And I like found the article that originally coined that term, which I feel like these like articles that used to coin stuff used to be really good. It was originally published in New York Magazine, um, but it was published by this guy, Jody Rosen in 2011. And maybe there was a follow-up in 2013, but it was mostly about the song Cruise by Florida Georgia Line. And it made a really compelling point about how what we know is bro country, which everyone always was like, oh, this is what's ruining country music, is essentially just like hybridizing with hip hop. Mm -hmm. Just like the instrumentation of it. Like you don't hear, um, you don't hear like a steel guitar like any of the traditional instruments that you would hear in a country song like the guy just has twang but then like it's like a trap beat and then he was like citing all of these collaborations between country musicians and rappers like florida georgia line had a remix with nelly that was like always on the radio um and there's also this really crazy song that i found out about through this article called accidental racist by brad paisley and ll cool j oh yeah i remember that yeah which had <laughs> let me find some of the lyrics it was like yeah. absolutely insane it was like, if you don't judge my gold chains, I'll f forget the iron chains. I was like, what are oh you talking god. about? Oh my god. Yes. If you don't judge I my do-rag, I won't judge your red flag. Stuff like that. So there was, was an attempt to be like at... a unity song? Like a, yeah, it was. A plur song? Yeah. And then one of the lines at the end is, R.I.P. Robert E. Lee, but I've got to thank Abraham Lincoln for freeing me. That is crazy. Yeah, I remember when this happened... And it was so insane because it wasn't really that long ago. I feel like it was probably like 2014. When was it? 2012, 2014, around 2013, then. yeah. 2013, yeah. Like, I mean, I guess it's like 10 years at this point. But I remember when that happened because it was like, just because I'm wearing a Confederate flag doesn't mean that I support like the South, like an enslavement. It's because I'm a Leonard Skinner fan or whatever. And it was just like <laughs> super like crazy and that was like i think the beginnings of the downfall of bro of country genre, at least sure. at least at least in the public i like brad paisley it used to be such a star and i think after that everybody kind of was left with a bad taste in their mouth whenever they started doing shit like that it just totally ruined the perception of like country music and i think really solidified some ideas about country that made people kind of associate it with Republican politics, with, you know, uh, racism in the South, which was something that country music worked for 
decades and decades and decades to separate itself from. And so I think I feel really resentful towards bro country because I think it totally removed itself from its roots as a genre and also made it quite clean. Like I think that one of the biggest impacts it had upon the genre is that country was always a bit more, I guess it romanticized like a more rough and tumble life and bro country really appealed to the sort of Protestant, very tight-lipped, you know, I'm a good girl type thing, you know? And that wasn't really the spirit of it for a long time. And now with these new musicians that are coming up on the charts, I think they're kind of redefining what people maybe have perceived about country. Yeah, I think, I mean, we talked about Morgan Wallen last time, but his collabs with like Lil Durk have been really, really successful. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I do think rap fans and country fans, not bro country fans, and I think traditional old style country music I think it, it shares a lot of stuff with rap music and I know that that's kind of, it's, it sounds like a reach I think but I think it's very true like our guest which will come on later in the episode studied under this um country music historian called B- Bill C. Malone and he recommended this book called Don't Go Above Your Raisin which was fantastic and thank you so much Kevin for recommending that book to me there is a chapter in it called Rambling Man and they talked about what I mentioned earlier about the divided Southerner, which is a simple man toward between hedonism and piety. And I'll read this quote from that book. Um, It said, everywhere one sees the contradiction of Southern working class life and the struggle between the polarities of belief and conduct that established the tension that had made country music appealing. Here again, I have been much influenced by the thinking of W.J. Cash, his famous man at the center who was elemental in thought and impulsive in action and moved readily between the poles of hedonism and piety, the conflicting demands of Saturday night and Sunday morning. Whoa. And I think like... (laughs) That's good. Beautiful quote. And I think it really embodies the struggle that country musicians speak about. One of the most consistent themes in older style country music is the theme of salvation and backsliding. You know, there's this like long and storied history of criminality and drug use in the lives of country musicians. Much of the music was born and bred in prison cells. And Malone kind of calls this the rambling impulse. He explains, and this is a quote, that the yearning for the open road and country music springs from a sense of failure just as much as it did from this like machista desire for unfettered individualism and freedom. You know, this like feeling of entrapment in your circumstances of poverty and maybe failure in your personal life. But I feel like this paradox can kind of exist in rap music as well, which champions the individual man and his like struggle towards success, attempting to keep his honor in the face of adversity and often hearkening back to religiosity with like frequent cries, God did and God's plan, you know, while also participating in this like paradoxical hedonism. And I think also part of the appeal of country music is not just that it is bred out of this plain spoken attitude of the South and working people it's also this like incredible romance of country music which so it's in, its inception has expanded the imagination of the working person and provided escape from their oppressive circumstances by bathing the humdrum of rural working life with like these epic tales of romance and adventure and i think a similar mechanism is used in rap music which historically has like romanticized and valorized the lives and struggles of poor black people who are often forced into the same paradoxical circumstances of hedonism and religiosity i think it's kind of a shared experience among working people and people kind of struggling in the face of adversity and then not even to mention the 
country fascination with Black culture. You know, of course, country music has been heavily, deeply influenced by Black culture. You know, in the early days, Black music represented a deviation from the musical and social norms of white Southern culture, and it appeals to this rebellious spirit of the rambler and those poetic souls who found themselves on the down and out. So I feel like there's this intersection of country that can really appeal. And, you know, I think both rap and country have its origins in blues. So... You know, those are my intersections that I see. Was that too nebulous? I ranted for a long time. No, that made a lot of sense. That was really good. And to bring it back to fashion, this is like one thing that I was thinking about is like, I was trying to like find common themes in Western wear, just like what we associate with country fashion. I feel like the spirit of like DIY and custom clothing and accessories is like such a big part of country fashion. Um, We'll talk about the nudie suit a little bit more later, but those kind of had like a design language of just like having like custom symbols all over clothing. How do you pronounce the boot brand? Lucchese? Lucchese? Lucchese. Lucchese. Yeah, Lucchese also did a lot of like customized or commissioned boots. They had this campaign in 1949 of doing 50 boots, like one for each state that had like the state bird and flower and flag all over them, which is very like Sufjan Stevens. It kind of reminds me of like a body covered in tattoos or like a biker vest that's covered in patches. Like the idea of a lot of country clothing, like country music having like an expression of storytelling or like just showing that someone has a narrative or like has been through some shit is really fascinating to me. But I feel like the same thing is true of like hip hop fashion, um, especially with like custom jewelry and reappropriated designer clothing and things like that that's really really true you worked on a book about that right yeah i did ice cold a hip-hop jewelry history (laughs) available from dashin.com yeah no but it was really (laughs) cool to see like the the whole story of like hip-hop jewelry is that like the jewelers were often these immigrants from like asia or like post-soviet countries and they like found a clientele with almost exclusively black people that just like wanted really crazy like customized stuff so i think it's the same way with like country fashion from what i can tell just like nudie nudie cone was also an immigrant right that's true he was an immigrant from ukraine yeah whoa we need to wake up the like it's always like eastern europeans who cater to like weird custom yeah, I honestly self-expression vibes. <laughs> when I was researching Nudie Cohen, I honestly is one of those things where it feels like kind of like folk art. Like, what was your inspiration for doing this? Like, why did you do this in the first place? Like, why did he start making these suits with, you know, embroidery of like dogs and plants and garlands and eagles? So, like, I honestly haven't figured that out yet. But Rachel Tashton wrote about nudie suits in the context of what they mean for American fashion and actually them entering hip-hop because we mentioned this in the last episode as well but um Post Malone started wearing them and that was a big thing because I think Post Malone also used to be kind of like a weird battleground for values like was he a shithead was he not you know (laughs) and yeah um she spoke with the granddaughter of nudie Cohen who said that her grandfather came up with the idea to add rhinestones, and that's like where it really took off for his suit creations. 
which is interesting because what it's like another yeah connection to kind of the idea of like bling and also rachel mentions in the article she wrote that there was a boom in western clothing in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. which honestly i wasn't thinking about in the last episode yeah that caroline yaney who we're gonna have on later wrote about this for the oxford handbook of country music And she referenced the popularity of Hollywood singing cowboys like Gene Autry and Tex Ritter and Roy Rogers as like heavily influential upon this country style. The boots and handkerchiefs and the embellished pearl snaps became all the hype. And Nui Cohen came in and kind of swagged it out even more. And even with the, she even referenced the uh, homespun clothing, but kind of in a very different context, you know, pre-war country dress oftentimes harkened back to this sort of growing up country motherly nostalgia. Women were often put in these pinafore dresses, gingham dresses, homemade clothing, bobby socks, overalls for men. And it oftentimes signaled a sense of like morality and tradition. You'd see these artists like the Poe sisters get up on the stage at the Grand Old Opry wearing these little cute outfits, very country sweetheart. And Nanny quotes an interview with Nellie Poe, Yandel, where she states that everybody wore bobby socks in the 1940s. I don't know what they would have done if they'd ever seen us dressed up in adult women clothing. Long as you was a little girl, you was all right. So it was kind of like whenever you dressed up in this sort of motherly slash girlish manner, it dispelled sexual connotations for the kind of audience that country was kind of targeting for that style. That's so funny to me. Like, it's really, I always see videos about different offshoots of, of Coquette. And I'm like, whoa, this is literally like the farmer's daughter, like Coquette origin story. Um, and it's really funny to hear about this going back so far in like country music history, just like dressing like a little girl. Yeah, there's even a page for it on Aesthetic Wiki. And it's like, yeah, gingham, like white socks, um, It's really funny because I think like in the modern day, unfortunately, I mean, we've talked about this a ton on the podcast, but I I found it most most striking that in pre-war America, dressing up like a little girl kind of signaled a dispelling of sexual connotations and like with the coquette, the rise of coquette, the rise of kind of girlhood core style dressing and attitude, you know, I think it's kind of signaling a sexual connotation which is quite dark and demented no it's obviously become so sexual like the movies that are referenced on the wikipedia page for farmer's daughter like x pearl carrie texas chainsaw massacre lolita and like all of these are like tragic tales of like horror you know like when did it get so dark-sided like is there no representation of this where the girl like doesn't end up covered in blood or like you know porn or something yeah we need to bring back wholesome farmer's daughter vibes the term term farmer's daughter is from the movie x the porno that they make is called farmer's daughter oh my god and so it's like farmer's daughter take two and that's the song that they always use on tiktok if my mental math is is adding up right i mean i think it's like a it's a trope from before that but it's like a stock character and a lot of stuff but yeah i think girls probably did bring it up from that tiktok audio yeah it's like so bizarre and interesting i that that transition is fascinating to me i really want to you know when we talk to caroline and and kevin I really want to talk about like the transition from pre-war to post-war Western wear, because I think there is like a pretty significant transition there. But I think, yeah, Nudie Khan, Cohen. Is it Khan or Cohen? It's probably Cohen, right? Cohen. Yeah, Yeah. it's just 
Cone, isn't know. it? C-O-H-N. I think it's just Cone. Yeah, I want to hear more about his life because I know, Biz, you, you did a very deep dive on this man. And I think, yeah, you. I hadn't heard of him until you brought him up, Biz. So I think we need to restore his name in the public eye because he was so deeply influential. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't know that much about his life specifically, but he was definitely like, a, like some sort of savant, in my opinion, or kind of like outsider artist, I think. But his first, I guess, big clients were people like John Wayne, Porter Wagner in the 50s and the 60s. And I mentioned this last episode as well, but Elvis was probably, besides Graham Parsons, the most famous nudie customer. Uh, Rachel writes that he is, yeah, is wearing one of nudie's gold lame suits on the cover of his 1959 50,000 Elvis fans can't be wrong and also I think we hinted this last time as well but like the most iconic image of Elvis which is him as Rachel says like the king plump and regal behind his aviators kneeling majestically behind a white silk cape in Las Vegas during the last few years of his life that's also a nudie suit so it, it it's that's just like so foundational to not even just like American fashion, but just like fashion and pop culture. As you guys know, I'm a huge Graham Parsons fan. Graham Parsons, like I said, is probably the most famous nudie suit wearer. Uh, he bought a whole set for his band, Flying Burrito Brothers. And if you look up any picture of Graham Parsons, he's probably wearing one. But yeah, I think the Graham's wearing of the nudie suit is I, I think a bit more interesting for our time because I guess we're talking a lot about like crossovers and Graham was like a huge kind of foundational crossover artist and like is considered like a pioneer of, of country rock and like country pop but Rachel writes that the crossover appeal of Parsons twang meets psychedelica music changed the perception of the suit somehow helping them break through and then there's just a couple of points that Rachel made that I thought were really interesting in terms of why, how his work is like referenced now in contemporary fashion, besides people like Post Malone and musicians, even like Jenny Lewis wearing kind of nudie inspired suits. So she talks about how there was an overlap in the 70s and 80s with bedazzle obsessed designers like Bob Mackie. But now brands like Gucci, Dior, and Saint Laurent are now directly referencing the rhinestone cowboy look, which handily combines the maximalism maximalism many designers gravitate towards in a post-Phoebe at Celine world. And the yeehaw twang consumers and rap fans seem to love it right now. Um, when did she write this article? Let me double check because, yeah, I, I mean, thinking about the, the styles Gucci was putting out, and like the mid, yeah, she wrote this in 2019. So like mid to late 2010s, all feel like they reference this heavy embellishment and kind of tailoring that Nudie more or less invented. But she also mentions that, so his granddaughter talks about how, um, you know, there's Gucci's recurring embroidered western inspiration as well as a rainbow eagle motif that seems to borrow from a well-known nudie dress um and how she wished actually gucci had just approached uh the brand and asked to do a collaboration but those examples 
predate Gucci's more formal collaborative and licensing process, since it was accused of copying Dapper Dan, actually, in 2017. Yeah, and then I guess to kind of end what her kind of take on the the popularity of the nudie suit was, um, she interviewed someone that said, it, it is this kind of American uniform to a certain extent, albeit ostentatiously dated. So it feels deeply comforting to that, even though we struggle with politics and land management and all kinds of diversity issues. We are all able to agree that we like the way the style of dress looks. She paused. Or not all of us, but it's been adopted by so many different parts of the culture. And I liked how she brought up in this quote, like the idea of this unifying us in the midst of like pol- political and land management conflicts. <laughs> what was she talking about with land it's, management? It's very I'm Sam like... core. <laughs> yeah, I'm like that. That like made me my ears perk up. I'm like land yeah. management. <laughs> you love land management. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, why is that like such an appealing term to me? I don't know. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe we could at this point we could kind of transition into our interview with Kevin and Caroline who we are so honored to have on. I'm going to record a little intro, but um, I'm really interested to hear what they have to say about NudieCon and the, you know, spirit of country music, which we will continue to talk about after the interview. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves and kind of explain some of your work and background? Sure. Um, I'm Caroline Nagy, and I am a a musician in the roots music industry, also a fashion fanatic and a writer about country music, mostly early to mid 20th century. Cool. And I'm Kevin Fontenot. I'm a native of Louisiana and academic historian, educator, I uh, had the great opportunity to study with Bill Malone, who's the founding historian of country music history. And I've written a book on Cajun music and articles on everything from the first man to make a country music record to country music images of the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. And so I've covered a lot of territory in that regard. We've been chatting a bit before, and I'm so impressed by you guys' knowledge about all of the subjects that we've discussed. You know, you guys have an incredible library of country music. One of the reasons why we became interested in doing an episode about this is because we were noticing like a little transition in the popular country music realm. Mm -hmm. So there's people like Tyler Childers, Nikki Lane, Sturgill Simpson, Charlie Crockett, who have the sort of more soulful acoustic sound. It feels more old style. It feels more nostalgic. And I've always been really fascinated by elements of nostalgia that exist in country music. And I wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts on why nostalgia seems like such an important element in the formation of the ideology behind country music. I remember reading a book called Plain Folk of the New South. It's a book that chronicles the transition in the Carolinas of Southerners from being agricultural, raising cotton and things like that, to becoming cotton mill workers. And I remember there was a statement, there was an interview with a lady in there, and she was being very critical of the men in her life. And she said something that has stuck with me now for 30 years. She said, what they want to do is go to the bar 
and drink and tell stories about how they used to go hunting and sing country music. She was criticizing them, but for me, they were engaging in this act of nostalgia. They had Mm -hmm. lost something and they were trying to keep it alive, doing it through storytelling and through singing, which in country music, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think for particularly the core base of country music audience, which Southerners, Mm -hmm. rural people, so many have been disconnected from the land. So many have now moved into suburban areas or into urban areas. They're searching or remembering another world, a set of values that meant something that was a real, you know, maybe they don't see this world as authentic. For the musicians, I think it's inspirational. People were like, but wait a minute, there's this real thing back here that we need to get back and draw on. But the thing they're doing is not what was there before. It's rooted in it. So you get the, you, you look in the 70s, you get the outlaw movement. They're saying they're going back to Hank Williams' era, skipping over the Nashville sound. Uh, but they're all recording in Nashville. But none of the music that they're playing sounds like Hank Williams. The artists you're talking about are in that stage. Mm-hmm. That is interesting because I, I found it interesting that you d- mentioned how this outlaw music did not sound anything like Mm -hmm. the Hank Williams sound, but it had the attitude of Hank Williams. And something else, when it comes to nostalgia, country music is called country because it is something that should be reminding you of home. The very Mm -hmm. genre was developed in the 20s, and so nostalgia was such an important part, something home, something stable. And then as the Depression raged and then World War II, that yearning for stability, that yearning for going back home when things were simpler, even as we burgeon forth into the industrial age, we get to radio, then television, it remains something that's sort of grounding. As country music grew as a genre, I think that the industry started to take hold. The nostalgia was certainly part of it, but the genre was built on nostalgia. So I think that the artists of today, Virgil Simpson, Nikki Lane, and even Lana Del Rey, to a certain extent, they have the thoughts in their hearts of the old music. And that is nostalgic for them, Mm -hmm. but feels Mm -hmm. less commercial. And I think (laughs) it's really interesting. It's a a genre built on rusticity, authenticity, etc. Yet, it's one of the most commercial genres that there is. When I think of artists today, who I think are playing real solid country music, Sonny Sweeney, who I heard just the other day sing Good Hearted Woman with Jesse Coulter, and it blew me away in the car. I'd never heard it. I actually almost wanted to stop and pull over because it was that good. Her, Brennan Lee, who's one of the best songwriters out there right now. Notice Mm -hmm. I'm talking about women Mm -hmm. because I honestly think they're doing some of the most interesting and the best music right now. And, you know, he's been around a while, but Dale Watson is doing, (laughs) you know, always in the history of country music, there's been the establishment and there have been these pockets of people who are bucking it. You had the Opry. You had the Hayride, the Louisiana Hayride, which was a wilder, freer show. And then after the Hayride went under, Bakersfield came up out in California. Mm-hmm. And eventually all of it gets folded into the bigger scene. That can't happen until after World War II. Because yeah, before mm-hmm. the war, you have a lot of regional cultures mm-hmm. and they're being marketed to by the major record it's companies. The development of the country is, I mean, the development of the country music genre. And eventually, post war, Nashville became the center. Mm-hmm. As Nashville became the center, and so that's when you start to see, in addition to the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. the women's liberation movements of the 60s, you start to see artists come through who are 
anti-establishment and not ashamed to, to show it. Today's artists like Sturgill Simpson, who's great, Charlie Crockett, you know, they're using all of those genres and they're doing the same thing. They're trying to operate outside of the Nashville commercialized music. Mm -hmm. You ask why it's attractive, nostalgia or mm -hmm. whatever. I think one of the things that people miss when they're talking about country music is you have to look at the culture it comes from, and that includes the fans. Country music is coming out of a culture that values certain things. Mm -hmm. It values individualism. It values family. It values patriotism, a hard work, being your own person, and Protestant Christianity. Yeah. Those are the aspects upon which the music is built. You yeah. know, what's always amazed me about the genre is how diverse it's been from day one, you know, and I'm talking, you know, not just black and white. I'm mm -hmm. talking Cajuns. I'm talking Czechs in Texas. Mm -hmm. Adolf Hoffner is singing in Czech, Western mm -hmm. Swing. Earlier, we were talking about the importance of finding records. We didn't get a full-on country music discography until the early 2000s. Yeah. Blues and jazz had had them since the 50s. And then when you look at it, you see the diverse range of styles. Mm -hmm. And thank God there's a label called Document. They released all the blues stuff. So now they're mm -hmm. starting to release the country stuff. And they're choosing to release things that you don't hear. They, thank mm -hmm. God for the Europeans. JSP Records releasing those cheap box sets. Mm -hmm. For me as a Cajun, it was a revelation to hear Cajun Western Swing. And as a matter of fact, the Cajuns recorded drums in a Western Swing band before mm -hmm. Bob Wills. Yeah. Leo Swallow was doing it just before Bob Wills. So the music is incredibly diverse. It's mm -hmm. not just a white guy with a guitar. Mm -hmm. In the early 2000s, Man of Constant Sorrow became this gigantic hit. All of Clear Channel radio management mm -hmm. in Nashville was astounded. They're like, how does this, this is not part of our like demographic. Country music radio is totally a thing. And in fact, I believe that it's a big contributor to not necessarily what's popular, but certainly what's out there. I go to these conferences on country music and my, my dear friend Don Kuzik, who's a historian of the industry, always likes to say in the 1990s, it was decided by radio. <laughs> country music was going to be marketed toward suburban women. And then do suburban women want to hear bro country? Because they want to see the guy in the tight white shirt singing about getting drunk and eating watermelons. You know, is that what they want? <laughs> What's and interesting is we, we, we talked about it in our first episode, mm -hmm. this sort of like almost like a homoerotic potential for yeah, the bro totally. country. Because there's like yeah. such a very muscular man, you know, hyper-masculine yeah. man. Yeah. And it's a very polished mm -hmm. image. I think yeah. uh, almost like in, the antithesis of a lot of country music. Well, not the, only the, is it a very polished image, it's a very polished sound, which yeah. is the antithesis of everything they're trying to represent that's true like, yeah they don't sound like a, a broken down old pickup truck they may no. talk about it but they sing i don't think their today. pickup trucks got scrapes from hauling firewood in the back and they didn't have a little datsun or a ford courier they didn't have no liner in the back and <laughs> that, th those themes in bro country have also mm -hmm. been in country music for a long time it's they true. just didn't dominate mm -hmm. the way that they did there for a while it's interesting because the relationship of women to country music has always really fascinated me. There's a specific attitude adopted by female country musicians about empowerment that really balances a lot of complexity. Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn, who have this sort of flavor of empowerment, even Tammy Wynette, even mm -hmm. though I think that's like a controversial figure. These mm -hmm. women, they have this attitude of empowerment mm -hmm. and really toughness. And they pair that with hyper-feminine presentation. And as someone who 
knows a lot about country fashion. I wanted to ask what your take on that was and how women throughout the history of country have balanced and expressed themselves through the country aesthetic. Well, it's a it's a couple of things. This is 2023. Country music began 100 years ago. The first released record was Fiddle and John Corson in 23. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is the very beginning of the genre, it was primarily dealing with barn dance shows on the radio, etc., and performances done by the audience. So women's presentation in the 1920s until the 80s, maybe, there's a very strong expectation of how you're supposed to be. Back in the day, you know, the 40s or the 30s, in order to even appear for anybody outside of closed doors. Mm -hmm. They had to meet very specific representations of what a female would be. In the 20s, it was very strongly, you were a sister, you were a mother. If you were married, you basically were, were out. They were not supposed to be independent, single, and singing country music. There were no female solo artists. They were either sisters, families, sister duos mm-hmm. on the radio in these barn dance shows. They just weren't. They had to be accompanied. Mm-hmm. And if they got married, unless there was some way that you could shove under the rug the fact that they were married to one of the people, like a lot of them oh, led wow. different lives from what their presentation showed, they didn't sing if they were married. I interviewed Leona Griggs Stewart, who was part of a group called the Taylor Griggs Louisiana Melody Makers, recorded in the late 20s. And uh, she was a mandolin player. And I interviewed her and her husband told me that it was one of his great disappointments that his wife, when they got married, chose to stop singing because he met her at a performance. And that was one of the things he loved about her. And he wanted her to sing. And she told him, I'm married now. I'm not supposed to do that. Married women don't do that in public. Mm -hmm. And then I think about Cleoma Bro Falcon, who was a pioneering Cajun woman, who also... She performed in public, but was either with her brothers or was with her husband. Outstanding performer, but she had to be in that context. Mm -hmm. And she was a flapper in 1920s Crowley, Louisiana, and divorced. She could have had a reputation attached to her, but she didn't. Right. I just sit here thinking, um, in the unexpected ways that women in country music show up in culture, um, Anna Kendrick's Cups. Oh, the cup song. That's right. I that's a quarter, the cup that's song. a quarter family song from the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. And, oh um, You're mm-hmm. kidding. Yeah, no, it no. is. And um, That song and is a Carter family song. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. crazy. And <laughs> it shows up, you know, because I remember seeing it the first time and I'm like, why do I know this? You know, yeah. I know this song. And then later, I it, it escaped me. And then a friend of mine she did a paper at the International Country Music Conference and revealed, and I, it was, oh my God, that's what it is. They have two songs that have very similar titles, so you have to be careful. Another uh, family group with two women. Yeah. Um, very, June Carter, of course, mm-hmm. Johnny K, you know, also from that family, but um, predominantly women. But, you know, as if in a family environment, they were the stars of their day for sure. They sold a lot of records. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then World War II happens. During the war era, women go out to the workforce. So there's a little more freedom associated with a woman. In country music, women represented where women were in in the culture at Mm -hmm. any given time. On the conservative end of that. Post-war, you start to see Kitty Wells, I think, went to 49 or something like Mm -hmm. that, somewhere in there, um, very early 50s. You start to see the first women that have solo country music records. Mm -hmm. So the image has changed slightly. In order for this to be palatable, acceptable, respectable Mm -hmm. to the fans who are 
the buyers of the records. What's really interesting, and it has me thinking, because these like grander archetypes of wife, mother, mm-hmm. daughter, sister, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. seem to be recurring within a lot of older country music. You wrote about in your mm-hmm. article for the Oxford Handbook of Country Music, Caroline, that the Hollywood cowboy was this mm-hmm. huge influence upon the fashion mm-hmm. of country music. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the Grand Old Opry as well, which we were talking about earlier, people like Minnie Pearl and, you know, there were these characters and archetypes that were really embodied and kind of switched around within country music. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I was a little bit fascinated by, it, as mentioned in Bill C. Mm-hmm. Malone's book, was this element of fantasy and escapism mm-hmm. in country music that these archetypes almost like operate in. And mm-hmm. it feels like country music is really attached to these very rustic, simple, down-home values. But the presentation of it, it it deals with these grander fantasies. And it's Mm -hmm. like a very exaggerated Mm -hmm. presentation. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear what you guys' thoughts were on that because... Flat out. That is not so much gender, that is class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, um, you know, in country music developed in the 1920s, the uh, stock market crash in 1929, the subsequent depression, you know, this is when country music was taking hold as a genre, every single one of the artists, the female artists that I admire Mm -hmm. has talked about the time that they were in the audience of another performer. And they said, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And the reason they want to do that, they were captivated by the clothing, the accessories. I think mm-hmm. the cowboy helped find an identifiable mm-hmm. genre that for country music that worked well. The country is the farm, the mountains, mm-hmm. and the Western is the cowboys. So mm-hmm. that that became the identifiable aspect of country music, the dominating aspect. But in addition, the uh, development of designers such as Nudie Cohn, Nathan Turk, who was the first one, mm-hmm. um, really started to take hold with these performers. They were not able to afford custom-made clothes. These designers had a unique aspect. They had already started designing for the, the cowboy movies and stuff, so they started to to present that. And that's where it became like, a, if you work hard, you can afford to dress like this. You know, It became a, a status symbol. It was a status symbol. If you want to look at the images that country music artists in the 20s and 30s had to choose from. Most of them were formers. The, by far, the majority of them had come from the form. There's nothing sexy about that. Most of them wanted to be respectable. Mm-hmm. A lot of them wanted to wear business suits. You look at Jimmy Rogers. He is a natty dresser. I mean, he's got skimmer hats, boater hats. He is a natty dresser. But that doesn't sell the image of this music that really the industry wants. So then you look at what do they have? You have the hillbilly and you have the cowboy. Mm-hmm. Now, the cowboy is a romantic image, mm-hmm. working image, not a pleasant life, but there was a lot of romance attached to it. The hillbilly is a troublesome image because when you think about hillbillies at this period where they're viewed as ignorant, backward mountain people who engage in feuds and moonshining. And then you, you see Gene Autry in 35 and he's before that, you know, Tom Mix, William S. Hart. They're in these really nice Western clothes. I would say that country music is probably one of the most areas where the image is supposed to show your success. Not far off from actually from from rap and some of the mm-hmm. other genres where like, you know, what you wear matters. Yeah, bling matters. Um, yeah, bling, yeah, bling matters. 
in the 40s and the 50s, it was meant to represent that you have succeeded. They wanted to look like a fantasy. And that fantasy was absolutely necessary for all the families that they saw standing at the foot of the trailer bed watching the show with stars in their eyes. You know, envision very poor families that live in culverts in California watching the Maddox brothers and Rose who crawled out of those culverts themselves mm -hmm. five years previous wearing Nathan Turk, wearing the fringe. The fringe means freedom. When yeah. the Nashville sound takes over, men like Eddie Arnold, he goes to tuxedos. That's country music marketing itself to the Frank Sinatra crowd in the wake of rock and roll. Now that business suit style had always been in country music. Mm -hmm. There's really interesting set of photographs of Dr. Humphrey Bates' possum hunters in the 20s. And in one photo, they're all in their business suits because, I mean, these are doctors and watchmakers and bankers and things like that. And then the other picture, they're in this rustic hillbilly outfit. I do think that what you were discussing earlier, like the showiness of the style, also was logistically in part to the fact that they needed to show themselves to an audience. They needed to stand out to an audience of thousands. So. Mm. The, the rhinestones, the fringe, like the movement, anything that moved like that showed it would catch your eye. And they wanted to be eye-catching. Little Jimmy Dickens was the first artist on the Grand Ole Opry to wear nudie, specific nudie cones styles, which were particularly proficient with rhinestones mm -hmm. yeah. and embroidery with embellished rhinestones on the embellished embroidery. <laughs> Little Jimmy Dickens himself, he wanted to stand out. He was mm -hmm. four foot ten. He really had, I think, a small stature, but this really strong presence that he wanted to amplify. I mean, when you're in a dark, smoky, crowded nightclub, for people to see you, you've got to have something. You know, Merle Haggard said when he first saw the Maddox Brothers in Rose in those Turk outfits, he was just blown away because he said when you saw their show, it was sensory overload. Mm -hmm. Well, y'all were telling me earlier, which I didn't know, Kevin, you shared that Nudie Khan started his career in embroidering outfits for burlesque, yeah, he, you know? Yeah. He, he started really making G-strings out of rhinestones for burlesque dancers on the West Coast. That's so funny. And, uh, and then he, I think it was rodeo performers who first went to him and began to ask for costuming. And then Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, I think, also approached him. Uh, and that's how he the... really begins to go beyond that. Uh, I, it was a documentary on Huey Long, the politician, and and someone said, you know, we, we, we listened to him talk and he was just like us, the way he talked and what he said. But then I looked at him out on his nice suit and nice shoes and I think he was a sure enough big shot. And if he could do it, we could do it too. That's mm -hmm. what it meant. I will say that I think that country music genre is probably the most costumey. Yeah. Like literally the word costumey mm -hmm. of all of the musical genres. Yeah. I think it's still that way. It's just that the costumes sort of change. So artifice has always been present. So what's really interesting to country music is when people like Shania or the hat mm -hmm. acts, the guys like mm -hmm. Garth Brooks, Clint Black, George Strait, you know, they started going for the simpler thing. I have met Europeans, for instance, that cannot believe that men wear that here. The cowboy hats, <laughs> the, like the same way we went to Bavaria and like mm -hmm. there's older men wearing lederhosen and like that's what they wear. It's their traditional cultural clothing. I, I think that movement to the hat acts, the hat acts of the 80s, um, the 80s. Late 80s, yeah. yeah. Is based on that going back yeah. to tradition, going back to nostalgia. That hat acts are really drawing on the inspiration of George Strait. Mm -hmm. it, it, he, you can't overstate the impact that George Strait had. I mean, more number mm -hmm. ones than any other country artist. His appearance and the way he presented himself, it's cowboy, mm -hmm. but he ain't working. 
He's made it. He's mm-hmm. a sure enough big shot because he's got them creases. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and he can afford to have his he, Western shirt. Stuff. He can afford it's it. True. Uh, and, and George, if you're listening, I love you. But I'm not criticizing you, man. You made an image. But well, he 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 brought back that classic Western mm-hmm. look without the jacket. It was just yeah. it, with the shirt. You know. Well, I mean? he he's also from Rockport, Texas, which is mm-hmm. nearby my hometown, mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of that dress and that style of dress that he has. It's a very Mexican-American part of Texas, mm-hmm. South Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of melds in together with that, like, ranchero, like, uh-huh. that type oh, of, yeah, like, you totally. know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, totally. I think it, 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 like, has that, like, symbiotic, like, influence oh, or something. Definitely, ranchero <laughs> and the vaquero. Yeah, know, it's true. Mexican cowboy, yeah, definitely. It's true, there, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, now we're talking about the implementation of the cowboy style. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, definitely Mexico has a lot of influence. The vaqueros, the buckaroos, mm-hmm. you know, bucko and buckaroos. Mm-hmm. Buckaroo is just a variation mm-hmm. on the word vaquero. I keep coming across this term, cowboy drag. Um, what you're talking about, Barbara Ching, in her book, Wrong's What I Do Best, she talks about exactly what you brought up, Sam. And um, she's called burlesquing of country mm-hmm. music. That's the term that she's using. I don't know that I buy her completely, mm-hmm. but I understand where she's coming from. She's arguing that people like David Allen Coe, yeah. <laughs> uh, is a burlesque on country music. I mean, I've seen David Allen Coe. I think David Allen Coe's dead serious. Oh, he is. Yeah. I, 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 I think he's, he's scary. There's some. Yeah. Yeah. I'm What you're talking about. She has, she's dealt with that in that book. And I would, mm-hmm. if anyone's interested in that, I would suggest they look at that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I, uh, I think it just has this very exaggerated presentation mm-hmm. that feels like a caricature, you mm-hmm. know, but I can see that he's very, cause he went to jail several yeah, times. Yeah. And was, he, know, was in, was... he was in reform school with Charles Manson. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forgot and, about uh, that. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. have a copy. Which of... one of them reformed? Definitely. <laughs> definitely <laughs> David. Allen I Coe. actually, yeah. I have a copy of, of a book that he wrote here and, and there's a section that says, why Charlie, why? And it's about his relationship knowing Charles Manson and you know that which brings in another aspect of country fashion I had never thought about and it's the biker trucker element Mm -hmm. that comes into it which is sort of a modern cowboy because it's the leather vest Mm -hmm. and the chaps. No that's definitely something since Easy Rider came out. Yeah I mean the only only time I've ever hung out with Hells Angels was at a David Allen Coe concert. (laughs) Oh wow. uh, They treated me very nice. I I (laughs) absolutely absolutely (laughs) no complaints about them. Yeah. Related to the dichotomy of salvation and backsliding. We were talking a bit before about Don't Go Above Your Raisin mm-hmm. by Bill C. Malone. And I a term really stood out to me called the divided Southerner, mm-hmm. where Bill C. Malone kind of talks about this dichotomy often found in the music and the lives of country mm-hmm. singers of, you know, backsliding and salvation. Mm-hmm. It's the conflicting demands of Saturday night and Sunday mm-hmm. morning. Saturday night, Sunday morning is how it's usually portrayed. But I don't think you can divorce them. They're intimately linked. And if you grow up in the South and you grow up in a Protestant church, and I grew up Southern Baptist, there's this thing that you do in Protestant Christianity where when you become a Christian, when you accept Christ, you have to proclaim it to the church. You walk the aisle of the church and then you face the congregation and you tell them that you are a sinner and you are in need of salvation. Some people go beyond that simple statement. You're not required to go beyond that statement. But some of them, particularly men, will tell you what they have done. I'm a drinker. I'm a fighter. I'm running around with women. I do all these things. And they will go through it. And I'm in need of salvation and Jesus can save me. Okay? I look at this and I, to me, I call it the hell of a man speech. 
they're saying they're not weak by becoming religious or faithful because they've done all this other stuff. They're recounting it. And they will often later say, well, you know, Jesus saved me from a life of all these things. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, yes, they're reformed, but they're keeping that masculinity that within them. And this sort of confessional thing is very common in autobiographies written by country male musicians. Either they're saved by their religious faith or they're saved by, like George, a woman. Mm-hmm. And often that woman is standing in for that religious faith, that, mm-hmm. that Christ, Christianizing yeah. femininity. It's an idea that, that I think about quite often. I, you know, we were talking about nostalgia and all of that. I want to invite your listeners to go find a song by Tom T. Hall, and it's called Homecoming. And it's a song that I have thought about a lot over the years. It's basically a one side of a conversation of a country musician in the 60s returning home to visit his father. And I'm not going to comment on it. I just invite them to listen and think about some of the things we've talked about. It's a beautiful story song that mm-hmm. encapsulates so much of what we've been talking about in this. You see, I bought this ring in Mexico. It didn't cost me quite a bunch. In the business that I'm in, it's putting up a front. I guess I should have written that to let you know that I was coming home. I've been gone so many years, I didn't realize you had a phone. I saw your cattle coming in, boy, they're looking mighty fat and slick. I saw Fred at the service station told me that his wife was awful sick. You heard my record on the radio. Oh, well, it's just another song. Once again, thank you to Carolyn and Kevin for joining us on Nymphet Alumni. If you would like to hear more from them, an extended cut of our interview will be available on our Patreon. And we will be linking their works in our show notes. So make sure to check that out. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, let's talk about um, Towns and Graham and the Trustafarian thing. Oh, yeah. This is like my personal utopia. I love it. It's my personal hay yard. My hay bale. My hay loft. <laughs> yes. It's your, it's your Roman Empire. Yeah, it is. I just love these guys so much. I mentioned Graham Parsons already, but... I guess him and the musician Towns Van Zandt, who we also mentioned in the last episode, speak to the same genre of country music widely. And they also speak to the same type of person, which Rachel points out in her piece that Graham Parsons is a Trustafarian. But he's also like, I don't know, I like the idea of like Trustafarian cowboy or like poor little rich boy, country (laughs) music star. Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, Towns Van Zandt was born into a prominent and wealthy texas family in 1944 his dad was a corporate lawyer he's musically inspired by people like hank williams he actually references elvis as well as one of his early inspirations and yeah i mean we i feel like we somehow always like talk about maybe we don't but the university of boulder it feels so <laughs> significant like culturally like yeah. i think all road, roads lead back all, i mean certainly all Trustafarian roads lead back to the University of Boulder or Boulder in general. Yeah, I think Boulder is like the Trustafarian HQ to this day. Definitely, very much the vibe of Boulder, Colorado. We talked about that in the um in Aspen. In Aspen, yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what it was from. But yeah, he went there 
and he sadly got an issue with binge drinking and depression and so his parents had to come collect him and in terms of his public image it's super enduring it's a cult figure certainly and I guess what I like about him is that I mean I guess he was hard on his liver but I mean like he was just like living hard for no reason and he was from a really wealthy family but He's in a documentary called Heartworn Highways, and he always chose to kind of live in like a trailer or kind of really run down bare bones home. And in this documentary, you can see him just drinking straight whiskey in the middle of the day, you know, playing with guns. And but then if you like look at images of him, I always feel like you can just see elements of his preppy upbringing and his style. And I always find that yeah definitely yeah I think he has that like popped collar and also he has like a a certain elegance and and androgyny about him which I think is very characteristic of the preppy the preppy mannerisms you know he's always wearing like much like a hobo too he's always wearing like (laughs) blazer jackets with like holes in them and like that's what I mean yeah I mean his name is Towns which is like his mom's maiden name which is extremely a certain type of wealthy southern person but yeah in his album Pounds Van Zandt he's wearing khaki pants cowboy boots and yeah an Oxford shirt rolled up to his elbows so yeah I always found like there's like a element of prep within his style that even with the things like the oversized blazer which obviously just ties so well into kind of like the undone look of the origins of Ivy style that you don't really see in someone like even like Graham Parsons who was way more leaning into like the psychedelic cosmic americana yeah uh, i mean I, I love him as well he's his son is actually this is kind of like a tidbit if anyone ever wants to visit the place of my hometown corpus christi is his son gives fly fishing tours in port aransas that you, you can like hire him to get, do like fly fishing and he's like the spitting image like the spitting image wow. of towns van Zandt. it is striking and he never knew his father and he feels quite conflicted about his legacy with him and he very similarly kind of retreated out into like the boonies like it's very much swampy vibes where he just loves to fly fish and i watched him in some like netflix tv show about hunting and he's like so poetic about fish and how much he like relates to fish and how he he really respects them which i find to be like an attitude with hunters in general they have this like really deep respect for the animal that they're hunting and also, okay, this is also kind of a side note, but I really, uh, Towns Van Zandt was part of this thing that is often referred to as the couch circuit. And it was really centered in Austin. It, it's centered in Austin mostly, but it's all across the South. And it was people like Towns Van Zandt, people like Graham Parsons, Blaze Foley, who was very good friends with Towns, one of my heroes, not heroes. I would never want to be like him. But Stevie Ray Vaughan as well. They were part of this couch circuit during this time because the idea was that these guys were so rough and tumble that they had been kicked out of most of the bars and venues in the South. And so most of their performances took place on pe- took place on people's couches. And much of the recordings that you hear them on take place in people's homes, you know, made by their friends. And I can never find anything about the couch circuit. If anyone can give me some more insight about this, I would really appreciate it. But yeah, like it's interesting because both Graham Parsons and Towns Van Zandt and Hank Williams and Blaze Foley and even Stevie Ray Vaughan, they all met very bitter, lonely ends, you know? Graham Parsons' death is fascinating to me because he was just like a UFO nut who just like did so many drugs in Joshua Tree that he like died, like died, which is really sad. But like my dad was always talking about Joshua Tree 
like how I need to stay away from there because I'm going to end up like Graham Parsons. But yeah, I just find it really interesting that like these are the country musicians that like the spirit of country is known for is these very poetic souls, very rough people who met these bitter but almost like um, very historic ends. Like a lot of people are fascinated by the tragedy of their stories. And I just like uh, juxtaposing that with bro country just feels like they're two paradoxical genres, you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like Graham Parsons and Townsend's out were way too depressed. Like, yeah, I think that's the reason people like their music is because it's so really speaks to the downtrodden, depressed soul. I mean, I, I, I really think what you said about the untimely demise, of course, with Graham Parsons is so true. His death is like probably more famous than his music in some ways. I think the first time I read about it was in Pamela DeBar's book about being a groupie, but yeah, he grew up really wealthy as well. He was um, born in Florida and an heir to a citrus fortune <laughs> country club. He actually went to Harvard um, for a while and then dropped out. But I think his music is really interesting because he sang a lot about being really down and out. Um, one of his songs, The Streets of Baltimore, is a cover of a song about um, a farmer whose young wife wants to move to Baltimore to enjoy modern urban living. So he becomes a factory man, works all day and all night, and then she becomes a prostitute. (laughs) And then he's like, you know, left absolutely kind of like destitute. Um, But yeah, Grant Parsons' life was fucking awful. His... um, his wealthy father killed himself when he's a kid. And then his mom like drank herself to death, which is actually, you know, speaking of like the, the, the kind of curse of Towns Van Zandt and Graham Parsons and like the one song that he actually does talk about this, which I will I'll link this article from the 90s called Poor Little Rich Boy and the Chicago Reader. But it's a song called Luxury Liner. And he covers a Porter Wagner hit a satisfied mind it's so hard to find one rich man and intend with a satisfied mind which seems really i guess reflective of these like yeah these country kind of trustafarian yeah untimely deaths with these men but i yeah i just i find their style really interesting i think graham parsons especially is like yeah the way he co- combined country elements with psychedelic Sometimes it reminds me of um, what was the episode called? Was it the, the Almighty episode? Like sometimes when I look at a nudie suit, nudie suit, all I can see is like 2013. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like the sticker vibe. It has a sticker vibe to it. Like all I can yeah. see is um, what's Lisa her name? Winkle. No, Betty Winkle. Winkle. Shout oh out my to Betty Winkle. She was probably Wait. like she's like their age though. Like she, she is. Yeah, she's like probably they were all they were both born like right after world war ii and she was born way before them actually so i feel like she's gonna live forever unlike Graham parsons and towns van Zandt. yeah um but yeah that's like for me personally where i find the most like stylistic inspiration in country i guess because it yeah it mixes those more siloed country references with with the the preppy handbook this is true yeah that theme of Trustafarians, there's this Jack Nicholson movie. I can't, here, let me, give me a second while I look it up. What is it called again? 
it's like the same th- this was such a recurring theme in the 70s and i think it also kind of carried over like from, easy writer no not easy writer but uh, there's another one where it's five easy pieces okay there's this movie called five easy pieces where it's like a very similar plot they almost like made a movie out of this trustafarian guy that goes country or working class it's like this very rich guy who rejects his upbringing and goes and works at like an oil field in california i think and then he has to return back to his family in this very like oscar Beatty type situation where there's like a funeral and i don't know i think that was just like the spirit of the times that's very like slouching towards bethlehem like all of these young hippies who were rejecting their upbringing and were incredibly disaffected by the values of the 1950s and trying to find respite in a community of people who supported freedom but oftentimes as we will find is a recurring theme in country music as well is freedom can often mean escaping your responsibilities and you can't do that forever it it comes back and bites you in the ass you know yeah that's like um the town's van zant song waiting around to die yeah it is what it is it's a sad one that's um yeah high recommendation heartworn highways it's like a his neighbor or friend who like lives with them is like crying during that scene and it's very touching. I forget. Is this a very beautiful performance? Yeah, no, this is like a this is when things got really dark. I think for country, the yeah the heavy industrialization combined. Yeah, I feel with- like there's not the heavy drug risk, drug use in country anymore. That no, there was yeah. with I mean they were using heroin and they were heroin addicts along with other drugs and alcohol and maybe it is behind closed doors but it's not like culturally as embedded i think in general like well that's where rap music i think is probably one of the only music genres that openly speaks of hard drugs you know and is influenced by its use you know there's like uh i've always found it really interesting that there's different like subsections and genres of rap in itself that are very influenced by the drugs that they use like lean you know i think there's like a bay area rap was really influenced by like taking molly and mushrooms at the same time and fizzing is what they called it and it was like i just think that we don't really have it music the music industry has become so polished and such a cash cow that i think they would never allow their artists that have any popularity to participate in any activities like that it's sad we like really do need that outsider aspect like i'm thinking about the the line in um towns van zandt's way to ground to die that's like about like her name's cody and she's the nicest thing i've seen which is like a love letter <laughs> to cody which is really connected to rap yeah you would have loved those oh. he would have loved he, he, lo- he would have ate that up he would have yeah because oh he would have gone to that one of those zandemic high schools because it seemed like those zandemic high schools were like wealthy oh, people Texas. high schools you know what i mean <laughs> like it was like people because yeah I, I don't know i never yeah the zandemic didn't hit my high school for some reason but i mean maybe it did and i just didn't see it but i don't really don't think it did but i think it was like la high schools that were you know like the very nice schools where kids were kind of going yeah. buck getting buck mm-hmm. speaking of buck shall we talk about buckle bunnies yeah we should but i i I do have to wrap up kind of soon um, oh yeah well maybe we could add that into the questions for the discord yeah which i have some listed here since we're wrapping up we have a few tidbits we want to kind of throw in here we're gonna make a playlist on youtube it will be linked and the full extended discussion with caroline and kevin will be released on our patreon we just have kind of a section in this episode 
and are going to release the whole thing kind of just for you guys to listen to as a little bonus. Um, and we wanted to throw in some questions for the Discord, which, you know, we could touch on topics that we didn't get to discuss in this episode, one of which is buckle bunnies, which I think is a great term for groupies for rodeo cowboys, which Bella Hadid is now in that historic lineage of buckle bunnies. And I also want to host like a discussion on the politics and psychology of owning like a really big ass truck. (laughs) Like, I think it could be a really interesting discussion. And also would love some personal testimonials from former or current participants in FFA or other collegiate agricultural science activities. I know for a fact that there is at least one listener that competed in intercollegiate meat judging at Texas Tech University. You slay. I think you're really, you're really cool, whoever you are. <laughs> that is really, really cool. If there are others, please come forward. I want to talk to you. And yeah, do you guys have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, mm. just... It just keeps the country spirit alive. We have a lot of really fun episodes coming up soon. And this is like the time of year where we get like crazy inspired. So yeah, our Patreon still has exclusive episodes and exclusive content. If you haven't subscribed yet, you should join. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And also as a little bonus, um, our outro is going to feature two very beautiful Southern Bells with the brains to match. Faith Fisher and Camille Sowers. They are the duo behind my favorite podcast, Texas Overture, which is a para-anthropology podcast about the state of Texas. They have a really unique and poetic perspective to offer the world. I'm like obsessed with them. I know you guys will clock their poetic perspective immediately. Uh, They're going to talk a little bit about country music and the significance of it. Um, And we hope you enjoy it. Also, check out their work. It'll be linked in their bio. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yay, bye. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. I'm Camille. I'm Faith. Um, and this is the Texas Overture Report. We're delivering this dispatch to NymphEd alumni, and we're so happy to be of service. Right, yeah, it's like a, a rainy, nice night in San Antonio, Texas right now. Yeah, the 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 winds of change are here, and uh, we're trying to take the temperature <laughs> as it happens. Um, yeah, so we both live in Texas, and we have for most of our lives, and, you know, admittedly, we're both primarily city girls, Um But, you know, we do a lot of field research and country aesthetics and traditions are a big part of the national identity of Texas um, and daily practices inside and outside of our cities. Um, So we're going to talk about some of the different threads, some of our observations, some of our insights. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) What do you what have you noticed, Camille? What do you what do you think? Well, when Sam first reached out to me about this um the, the first thing that I thought of that I kind of wanted to meditate on was my experience as a former soccer girly um traveling out into the country to play games uh going to college station for for soccer camps and the thing that kind of s- stuck with me through all of that was like kind of uh some of the sartorial uh aspects of the of the culture there um and 
I think girls who play soccer in Texas, um, it, it does seem to be a sort of like more rural uh, pastime. It seems to unite, you know, the girls living within the cities and the girls outside of the cities. Um, but there was kind of like a pervasive uniform that I noticed that these girls would wear um, throughout this time um, outside of their team uniforms, of course. Um, and I'm talking, you know, pre-wrap headbands, uh, T-shirts tied with hair ties so as to, um, you know, make them fit closer to the body. Uh, a tank top pulled underneath with the lace trim, Nike elite shorts, layers upon layers of rubber bands with Bible verses and Livestrong bracelets. Um, and then, of course, the Bucky's t-shirt. Mm. Yeah. And uh, to our non-Texan li- uh, listeners, you might not know what Bucky's is. Faith, do you want to attempt to? It's like if a gas station were an amusement park. You know, you go inside of a Bucky's and everyone's like dripping wet for some reason. Somehow everyone is like looking for another person. Like they're all calling out like, Ma, you know, there's like jerky everywhere. Everything is sugar coated. There's there's layers of T-shirts with like a beaver, uh, you know. My overbite is sexy. But like the American flag is in the background or like the, you know. There's yeah. like a light NRA theme or, you know. No, it feels it feels like the end of history, Bucky's does. It's like, okay, I, the human project has led to this. <laughs> they, in, a, the, in a way that's both like beautiful and, I don't know, tr- kind of tragic. And, and, and you know, unsettling um, yeah. if you're not prepared for what you're, you know, for entering a space like that. Um, yeah, it does feel like the, the pinnacle of human existence has resulted in, in the the creation of the beaver nugget which is one of their popular branded items which i'm, I'm not even i'm not even sure what that is mm-hmm. um i don't even know what it is uh but you know bucky's it started in uh it was founded in 1982 as just kind of like a country store that people would stop by before they went to the lake um but then it became so popular that it started expanding into these like mega fauna versions of itself and i think in 2003 um so now you know driving through the country in texas is characterized by like you know billboards kind of warning uh right. of the of an incoming bucky's um it's kind of like the i feel like wearing a bucky shirt is kind of like the texas version of coming back from a cruise with like like cornrows or like beads in your hair yeah, because totally. because you can tell that they went out of the city and it's like oh my god oh where did you drive to and they're like yeah we i, I went and visited my family in kentucky or in, in texarkana or like or yeah like we went out to the lake and i got to ride on like brad's my uncle's pontoon motor jet. Yeah, my uncle <laughs> my uncle's boat um it, yeah no that's a that's a very apt way to describe it so then like these like cool soccer girls would always be wearing bucky shirts um and i was always like i don't have one i feel i feel um you know excluded but i think i think that's a very notable um aspect what about you faith what was the first thing that you thought of given this prompt um i was running through some of the some of the choices that i and my colleagues make um and I was thinking about the what feels some sometimes like a like a country specific need to have like a trusty item 
specifically like a trusty pair of boots or a trusty cowboy hat. Um, you know, you, you might come across any given terrain. I have a trusty hat and a trusty pair of boots. And if I'm not wearing them, I keep them in my car among many other like trinkets and, and closet staples. Um, and they feel like they're like melded to my feet and head, you know, it, it feels like an extension of myself. Um, I had like a, like a trusty cowboy hat that I'd wear to the river all the time. And I'd put like the little river rocks in a pouch that was inside the hat. It, it came with a little, like a little secret pouch. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And I would only ever realize that I had already put rocks there at, during the next river trip when I was going to put more rocks there, which is kind of fun. Um, as for boots, I had, I had a friend who kept like a trusty pair of red cowgirl boots in her car because she'd leave the house. She lived on a little ranch and, uh, she'd want to wear her, you know, her kitten heels and her Mary Janes. But then when she would get back every night, there would be a rattlesnake waiting at the gate for her. So she'd have to, you know, change it. You you don't want to be like clacking away from a rattlesnake on the rocks and kitten heels. No, a rattlesnake doesn't want to see your your coquette like LeBuke, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, little little Mary Janes. He's gonna he's gonna get your ankle. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. And he won't feel bad about it because you're such an easy target. You have to fortify yourself. <laughs> um, I think one of the most like stunning stories of a trusty hat was once some of the girls and I were out in Terlingua and we like came across a Mexican restaurant in a very desolate part, um, which it's all kind of desolate, but you know, it's like the sort of thing where you uh, turn around a very sharp mountain and there's like a neon dancing, smiling jalapeno in the distance and, and it feels like an illusion or something. Um, and we ate and then I, I came out and there was a, a talkative fellow that I met who a drifter yeah yeah very much so a drifter and he was carrying a guitar and so I was like oh are you a musician um and he was he was like no I actually don't know how to play the guitar I've never learned but I've carried this with me for like 15 years um and I, I thought that was really amazing and then he told me a story about how back in the day he was wearing this beautiful hat that had like feathers sticking out of the the band around some um, plumes yeah and he told me a story about how back in the day he used to sleep in the mesquite bushes because he had nowhere else to stay. And then like a huge gust of wind took the hat off of his head and carried it into the distance and he lost God. it. And it was lost to him for several years. And then one day he was down back in the mesquite bushes again. You know, you never, when you're down bad, you're down in the mesquite bushes. Mm-hmm. And a huge gust of wind brought the hat back to him. And it was beautiful. God, truly, that story has never left me. Um, I I was also on that trip, but I was in a different car. So I, it was like me and the drifter were two ships in the night and I didn't get to kind of gaze upon him firsthand, but I saw a photo and... um, Yeah, I did a painting. (laughs) He's really magnificent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, the, the idea of a trusty object is really interesting. Like, you know, for example, in the Texas Overture office, we have a lava lamp on the table and I think that's my trusty lava lamp. Um, it's like crystallized and yeah you know an amorph amorphous blob but i but i'm i wonder like what it is about texas that like makes that that like beckons one to kind of adopt an object and maybe it's like it feels so expansive and cinematic that like you kind of develop sort of like a a static um like platonic ideal wardrobe or like setting or something to like 
kind of live up to the legend of the land or something. Yeah, I think like probably in the earlier days too, things being so expansive and spread out, it was like if you have something, you can't just replace it. So um, yeah, you have to have, you have to like keep your objects close and make sure that they, they matter to you and that they will come back to you if they ever get lost. Totally. Um, the other thing, the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about um, is kind of, you know, on on the topic of like aesthetics and like clothes um, uh, is kind of like the music scene in Austin in the 70s. Um, and it was centered around this place, or at least, you know, if you ask the right people, they'll tell you it was centered around the Armadillo World headquarters, which was a venue that was only around 10 years, but it had people like Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and Jerry Jeff Walker. Um, and to a lot of people, it's kind of like, it kind of like defines like the the merging of like this like hippie sensibility um and this kind of like more country you know cowboy sensibility and that happened in a few ways like through kind of like you know converging musical genres like progressive country um you know some some might say that there were flavors of cosmic cowboys redneck rockers hipster cowboys uh which is like a later permutation that we'll get into um, but one of the ways that, that, that they, you could kind of like statistically tell that there was something happening here was the, the sale of Lone Star beer. And I'm, you know, I know this isn't as popular in other states. Um, it, it is wildly popular here to this day, but, um, previously Lone Star, you know, the sales were down. It was kind of just known, it was steady, but it was known as like, quote, and I took this from a Texas Monthly article, the beer from the big country, uh, rural outdoorsman's beverage, a beer for cattle pens, deer blinds, and base boats. I think that was one of their advertising slogans. Um, but then as this kind of music scene and cultural scene development started to take hold and like, you know, corresponding with national shifts and like attitudes around the war and stuff, uh, you know, sales started to boom and, uh, the Armadillo World Headquarters sold more Lone Stars than any venue in Texas uh, outside of, like, the Astrodome in Houston, which is, like, a stadium. And I don't know. I just think that's kind of interesting. So, you like, you have a lot of different uh, people coming together, a lot, like, you know, kind of merging the way they dress. Willie Nelson is a good example of this, you know, boots and long hair. Um, and, you know, many people have tried to, like, mimic this look. And I think... You know, in any Texas city today, like decades later, or um, any what I'll call like southwestern elite enclaves, and I think Marfa is a good example of this. Um, yeah, I could honestly talk for hours about Marfa, and uh, I was thinking about yeah, you were l- n- listing like types of cowboys, and I was thinking about like the minimalist cowgirl aesthetic that I find to be um, irreverent, and I don't like it very much. <laughs> What 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 would entail like what goes into a minimalist cowgirl aesthetic? I think a lot of it has to do with like home decor too. Oh yeah. Um, I think about like like a teeny tiny little cactus on the table. Yeah, and like a beige, like a lots of lots of beige and painted arches and sort of like a things that feel sort of like gestural and like they're kind of referencing Georgia O'Keeffe or something, but mm. they're not because they a lot of it is DIY, so it's just like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, or like the big dusty longhorn painting 
yeah court you know on the other wall definitely we could go into countless deep dives about these different things um but yeah i don't know like you see a lot of these different permutations and like places that we frequent today like the lonesome rose in san antonio which is a phenomenal bar don't get it twisted but you see a lot of yeah we all masks right we kind of have like a joke i feel like that when someone comes in and they're wearing their cowboy outfit but they look super pristine it's like oh they're from austin (laughs) no and it's usually very easy to tell um and not that this is like the most you know one horse town in the world but there is it is more like of a working class town and i think that there's like maybe like a like a sensibility that plays into like the 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 dynamic of you know posturing and and all of that yeah yeah you can like tell when someone doesn't know the difference between like a regular wide-brimmed hat and a cowboy hat totally (laughs) but you know i think i think this like diffusion is beautiful and i think especially for people who grew up in texas like you know i i'm not i'm not i wouldn't call myself a country girl but i drink lone star constantly and maybe that's speaks to other problems but the, it it does still like anchor the culture in this way this like you know beer born out of like the a beer that you know quenched the thirst of these right you know country men of your <laughs> yeah i think for the sake of uh brevity we'll wrap it up um it's been lovely Texas forever. Texas forever, baby.